The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We continue our study through 1 Timothy together this morning, coming to one of my favorite passages, one that speaks to the institution of the church, but also the purpose of the church in the world, and that's 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul writes in verse 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Now, before we get to the main meat of the text today, I think it's important to point out from 1 Timothy 3.14 that Paul had a great desire to see Timothy, but Paul had no awareness of what his future might hold. I think that to be very important for us to remember in our day and age, God certainly knows everything that shall ever come to pass. He declares the end from the beginning. He has all knowledge of every event in heaven and earth, and he has total oversight over everything that happens. We often say that God either causes things or suffers them to be, and that's an expression of his sovereignty. He, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But Paul, like us, simply writes to Timothy and he says, I hope to come unto you shortly. In 2 Timothy, we read that when Paul wrote that epistle, he was alone, and he very much felt himself to be forsaken. And he remarked that he was all alone. The only person there that was left with him was Luke. And everyone else who had been with him had forsaken him and left him and fled from him. He often found himself incarcerated. If you read the life of Paul, there were times that he was beaten. There was times that he was stoned. There were times, there were times that he would be scourged. Times that he would be whipped across the back, he would be beaten with rods. There were times that Paul was shipwrecked, and you can read of one, one of the occurrences at least that he was shipwrecked in the book of Acts as he was crossing the, I believe, Mediterranean and ended up in a storm called the Eurachlodon and drifts ashore on driftwood on an island full of barbaric people. He lived a life of it. Well, you might look at it and say adventure, but it was a life of great suffering and great trial, and he simply didn't know where he was going to be. But he had this great desire to be with his dear friend Timothy, his apprentice. Paul was a father in the ministry to him. Timothy was a, an apprentice of the apostle Paul. And he expresses this desire, Timothy, I simply long to be with you again. I believe that we can sympathize with Paul in that. There are people that we long to see people that we love in the faith, people that we haven't seen in many years. Paul and Timothy often travel together, as you know. And according to the first chapter of this epistle that Paul wrote to him, they had been together and they were separated by necessity. There was a church, the church at Ephesus, that stood in need of ministry. And so Paul leaves Timothy there. He goes into Macedonia. He continues his gospel journeys. He continues traveling and preaching and making new converts, but also confirming those in the faith, building up the faith of those existing converts, visiting churches that he'd already planted. 
And he leaves Timothy there by necessity to labor in Ephesus. And so he put his, the needs of the church there over the needs of himself. And he longed, he hoped, to be with Timothy once again. As we think about the hope that Paul had to go with him, I think it's important to remind us the nature of prayer. As James wrote, we shouldn't pray, we shouldn't speak in such a way, rather, to, to say, well, I intend to go into a place and to be there a year and to make gains and to profit, but we should simply say, if it be the Lord's will. If it's God's will, then I'll do this. If, it, if it's God's will, we'll, we'll be in this city at this time. If it's God's will, I will have this, I'll have success, or we'll be able to beat this battle, this cancer, this sickness, whatever it is that's God's will, that I submit my knee unto God's will. Well, how is it that we end our prayers? If it be thy will. I had a conversation recently with someone over the, the recent abortion law in the state of Alabama, and I made the comment in a series of meetings recently that I don't have much faith in our government to uphold that bill. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the Supreme Court, and I don't have a lot of confidence in our elected officials, so I don't know if that bill stands, but I hope that it does because I believe very much in the sanctity of life, and the conversation ensued after that. Well, don't you, aren't you supposed to pray believing? And I said, certainly I am. And they said, well, isn't it God's will that unborn life be preserved? And I said, certainly it is. But many times God in this world suffers things to happen that we don't like. And I don't have the answers for why those things occur. But I do know this, that God many times suffers things to occur in this world as a judgment. But God also turns men over to their own devices in such a way when they pursue it, and they continually pursue it, and they rebel against him, and they rebel against him, then finally he lets go, and he says, I turn you over to those reprobate things. And then once they're there, they live with the judgment of what occurs when they pursue that which God commands them not to pursue. And so we pray, and we live in such a way, we speak in such a way that we say, if it be God's will, if it be his will, then we will do whatever it is that we hope to do. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I hope, I hope to come unto thee shortly. Paul desiring to be with a person or a church is something that he would mention over and over in his epistles. For example, in the book of Romans chapter 1, in verse 13, he expressed that, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, the word let there means hindered, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I'm a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek to preach the gospel unto them. Paul says, I have so many times wanted to come and even to be a part of you, to labor among you in Rome, and I've simply been hindered by things of this world. Paul understood that sometimes God had purpose for him to go elsewhere. Paul wanted to go to Macedonia, or rather Paul wanted to go to Asia, but God sent Paul to Macedonia. The Spirit suffered them not to go into Asia, and Paul ends up going into Macedonia shortly after that. So Paul understands that in his life, sometimes God says, no, that's not what I would have you to do, and God sends Paul somewhere else. And at the same time, many times in Paul's life, he understood that he might be incarcerated, he might be arrested, he might be beaten, he may be shipwrecked, and the 
affairs of this world simply wouldn't permit him. The opposition of the enemy wouldn't permit him. So Paul expresses this great hope to be with Timothy. Now, as Paul expresses his hope to be with Timothy, he reveals unto us his purpose of writing this epistle to his dear friend, Timothy. And this point that we begin making from verse 15 builds upon verse 14. I desire to be with you, Timothy. I want to be with you. But in the instance that I'm not able to be with you, I send this letter to remind you of some things and to charge you of some things, to exhort you of how you ought to behave yourself, conduct yourself in the house of God. Now we remind you that Paul was Timothy's mentor. He was Timothy's father in the ministry. Sometimes people mistake their relationship as one that it was Paul who enters into Timothy's city and preaches to convert Timothy. And Timothy is then converted and journeyed with Paul. But as you read in Acts 16, when Paul goes into Timothy's city, Timothy was already a certain disciple. That means that Timothy had been converted to the faith before Paul had arrived. And yet when Paul gets there, perhaps Timothy was already speaking. Perhaps he saw in Timothy this gift to preach. Paul takes Timothy under his wing and he begins to mentor him. Timothy is the apprentice of Paul. And so it's amazing that even though Paul and Timothy are separated by space and Again, that by necessity, the church at Ephesus had need of Timothy's leadership. Paul writes to him because he's still concerned with Timothy and he's still concerned with the churches that Paul has sent Timothy or left Timothy to labor among, namely the church at Ephesus. And so he reveals his intent in writing this entire epistle. If I tarry long, if I'm unable to be with you, that, to paraphrase, that you might know how to conduct yourself in God's house. Now, as we read that language, behave yourself in the house of God, that might make us assume that Paul has under consideration our behavior as we come together in public worship. And I might insist that there is a proper behavior in public worship. But that isn't Paul's intent when he is writing this epistle. As Paul addressed the way they meet has Paul addressed the spirit of worship? Has Paul addressed, as he spoke to, or as he wrote to Timothy, coming to church with a reverential attitude as opposed to a casual attitude? Have any of those things been the topic of conversation thus far? They really haven't. Paul addressed what? He addressed truth. What else did Paul mention? He mentioned coming together, lifting holy hands, praying that the saints of God pray everywhere. He mentioned the fact that sisters ought to dress in a modest apparel rather than an immodest apparel. And if you weren't here for that, sisters and brothers alike, we are to dress in modest apparel. We're to behave ourselves in such a way that we are modest. We shouldn't flaunt our physique, whatever it may be. But we should dress in modest apparel. I intended that as a, a sarcastic remark anyway. We, we dressed in modest apparel we should be people who are people of modesty, and we should pray. We should lift up our holy hands, praying to God. We, we learned about how women are not permitted to teach in church, but women are commanded to teach in the home, and they have children, and they're delivered from silence and childbearing as they raise their children with faith and charity and holiness, with sobriety. 
And then we looked at the qualifications of the gospel ministry and the qualifications of deacons. What Paul has in mind when he speaks about behaving himself in the house of God is less the way that he is to behave when he comes together in worship and more the way that we conduct church in general and we conduct ourselves as the body of Christ in our day-to-day lives. You might even think that he's so far past simply the way they come together in church that he has in mind under consideration things that are far beyond that. Praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands that Every day in every disciple's life, they lift up their hands to God in prayer, and they do this everywhere, not just in the public assembly. Again, to remind you of that message, if you were here for that, if you were not, the Jews in the first century thought the only place or the place above all places that they were to pray was the temple. And even when they couldn't pray in the temple, they would turn themselves towards the temple And they would pray, as you see many times in the Old Testament, even in Solomon's prayer, he begs God as that house of God is consecrated, that temple is consecrated, that they would, if they were in captivity, that God, if they're in captivity, let them turn their faces back to this place and pray to you and hear their prayer when they look to this place and they pray. But Paul said, no, you can pray everywhere. Men lift up holy hands to God as they pray everywhere that they are. That's a part of the way that we behave ourselves as the house of God, as the church of God. We pray everywhere. As you think about the word behavior, a synonym for that is conduct. The way that we behave is the way that we conduct ourselves. As we think about what Paul has written thus far in the previous three chapters and in our previous nine messages through this epistle, we've learned much about the administration of the church, the way that we are to demand the gospel of Christ. As we think about behavior and conduct in church, one of the ways that we, de- that we uphold this biblical behavior is that we demand the true gospel be preached. Did you realize that that's a matter of biblical behavior? That we demand the true gospel be preached? That we demand that the word of God is taught? Now, that is contrary to what? To error being taught. In other words, the church is an institution, as we will see in just a moment, that upholds and defends the faith. The church demands the truth be preached. It matters what is preached behind the pulpit. It matters what is preached before God's people. And Timothy, along with the church at Ephesus, should emphatically demand the truth is preached in their midst. And that's a matter of biblical behavior. I think this is a, a concept that desperately needs clarifying in our day and age. And we'll speak more to that in just a moment. When we read how to behave thyself in the house of God, we would automatically assume our personal behavior as we gather in worship. But Paul intends so much beyond that, even to the way that we conduct service. As we think about the word behavior and its synonym conduct, and one of the definitions of this word, one of the synonyms of this word behavior is that of conduct. Think about it this way. If a preacher holds a funeral, what is the word that he many times uses to describe his officiating of a funeral? He conducted a funeral. What is that? It's a derivative of the word conduct. We think about conducting a wedding. If you say, I conducted or I officiated a a wedding this past weekend. And weddings are so much more joyful 
to conduct than funerals. At the same time, preachers are a lot less afraid of conducting funerals many times than they are weddings. A lot less can go wrong in a funeral than a wedding. First of all, you don't stand at risk of offending the person that you're there for. Secondly, you know when you go to a funeral, the person that you're conducting the funeral for is going to stay dead. And you never know if the person that you're officiating the marriage for is going to stay married. And so, you know, it's a, it's a lot safer anyway conducting a funeral than a wedding. But um, I'm, I'm always less, less concerned with, with funerals than with weddings. But what do you do? You conduct that. This morning we're conducting a church service. Have you ever thought about the word that we use when we conduct a church service? It's literally the word conduct. It's the word synonym for behavior. In other words, there's a proper way that we are to gather together in worship. Paul doesn't as much have our behavior in worship in mind as he does the way that we conduct this institution that we refer to as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, along those lines, while that is true, at the same time, there is a way that we should behave ourselves in the house of God. And this speaks to the issue that needs clarifying in modern churches today. It would not be fitting to come into the house of God today and for the house of God today to look like any rock concert that occurs at the Von Braun Center on a Friday night in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, there are churches that conduct themselves that way each and every Sunday, and as much as that would offend them to, to hear that, and as much as I want to be delicate with the situation in their presence, that is not fitting in the house of God. Because this is not a place for rock concerts. This is a place for what our forefathers called divine worship. If you've ever read the minutes to our church, they go back to 1809, I believe about June of 1809. And as they recorded the minutes, as they recorded the proceedings of that day, they met for worship on Saturday and Sunday, and they met one weekend a month because that was a different America than we know today. They would come together on Saturday, they would worship and conduct their business, and then on Sunday they would meet for only worship. And I don't have the specific answer, but I, I believe it might have something to do with the fact that they were, in some sense, Sabbatarians, and they believed it wrong to conduct any business on Sunday, many of our particular Baptist cousins in England are that way today. They won't go out to eat on Sunday. They won't conduct business on Sunday. They viewed it as the Lord's Day. All they did was go to church and rest. All the strict Baptists do in England today, they go to church and they rest. That's all they do. They won't do anything else. And I believe that maybe our forefathers looked at that and said, we'll conduct our business on Saturday and then we'll have our worship only on Sunday. And they had conference once a month, very rigidly once a month. And I'm thankful that they did that because, because they did that. We have these minutes that go back and prove our antiquity as a church body. Now, I don't have conference here every month because it can be redundant. If we don't have business, then we don't have conference. But at the same time, it's important to have conference because it gives a paper trail where you can prove who you are that you have this claim to be a Baptist church of antiquity, a church of antiquity. It, it might be the only thing that legally proves that you're a church one day. But as they come together in business, one of the things that they always recorded in the minutes is that the church meeting in divine worship. Understand what we're doing here today. We have met in divine worship. We came together to worship Almighty God. 
Now, understanding that, that I came together today, we met today to worship Almighty God. It affects things that we do. It affects the way that I prepared my heart to be in God's house today. With reverence, let the saints appear. As we sing in one of the hymns in our hymnals, we come together with reverence. It isn't about me as much as it is about Christ. And I say that me, not as the man who stands before you trying to share the word of God, but as a person in the church. We come together not about us. We come together about Christ. That affects what we do. It affects how we do it. It affects the mentality. So many times today, people come to, the, uh, to church with the what can I get out of it mentality. And that is not the biblical mentality of the church in, in the Word of God. The biblical mentality of the church in the Word of God is I come to church. I come together to gather with the saints of God feeling unworthy to be there to present my body a living sacrifice you get the imagery of the Old Testament where they would go to the house of God, they would bring their bull, they would bring their turtle dove, they would bring their lamb, and they would slaughter that animal. The priest would slaughter that animal and offer that animal as an offering to God. But you presented not a bull or a goat or a lamb or a bird. You presented your body as a living sacrifice. You come together in the house of God and you are the offering. You've presented your body an offering. As we think about that, and, and I'm leaving the notes for a minute to engage in this tangent. How offended was God in the Old Testament when they said, you know, I've got a maimed goat over there, and I've got this good firstborn, without spot, without blemish lamb. I really could sell that lamb. I could have great financial benefit of that lamb, but that goat over there that's, you know, cross-eyed and blind with one horn and a gimp leg, not a whole lot I can do with that goat with the gimp leg. So I'm going to give that gimp leg goat to God. And I'm going to offer it to God. Because I can't use it for anything anyway. And I'm going to keep this firstborn without spot, without blemish lamb all to myself. What do you think God's reaction to that was? He explicitly says in the law, I want animals offered unto me. The firstborn without spot, without blemish and the reason that he did that is because these Old Testament animals all pointed towards our Savior Jesus Christ, which was a lamb without spot, without blemish, offered to God for us. He was the only thing that was good enough to take away our sins. But these Israelites, and you see this in the Old Testament, they would offer that which was maimed, they would offer that which was blind, and God rebukes them for that. He says, if you made this offering unto your governor, do you think your governor would be pleased with that? And yet you've made this offering of the gimp goat, as it were. We're going to make a character in Bible cartoons, the gimp goat. Anyway, that you offer the gimp goat unto God and you think God will be pleased with that? God forbid. He didn't hear that. He didn't take that. He didn't receive that. He was offended at that. Now, as we think about our bodies being the living sacrifice, our offering that we present to God, even though this is a new day, even though this is a different era, this is the new covenant, not the old covenant, that principle applies. That God demands our very best in worship, not because he is unreasonable, because when Paul spoke about that, he said, which is our reasonable service, God demands it because God, listen to me, deserves it. God deserves our best. God deserves our best. And so that... That ought to affect everything we do in the house of God. It ought to affect everything that we do in the house of God. Now, this, again, is a tangent. 
Paul is not writing about the way we come together so much as the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we conduct our administration, the way that our church government is framed, the way that we behave ourselves with modesty, the way that we demand the truth. Know that he has a lot more than simply the way we act when we go to church in mind. It's almost assumed, yeah, you're going to go to church and you're going to be reverent. But I want to hammer on that for just a minute more. When we come to church, what is the mentality that, that we are to approach unto God with? Reverence. Mike Goins wrote a book a few years ago, Rediscovering Reverence. The reason that we conduct ourselves, behave ourselves this way in church is because we reverence God and we reverence His Word. Now, at the same time, not only do we come together with reverence, but we come together with joy because... As sinners, yes, we are coming before God, the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God who led Israel by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the God that smote Egypt, the God that caused the ground to open and swallow sinners alive, the God that sent snakes into the camp of Israel, the God that rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that make you want to approach unto him reverentially? But we come together with joy because he's also our father and we cry unto him, Abba, Father, and he sent his son into the world to die for us. And the year of Jubilee has come. The captives have been set free. We have salvation through Christ. And so we come into his house with singing, with joy in our hearts because God has turned again the captivity of Zion. And we'll be like them that dream as we read from Psalm 126 this morning. Oh, God's put a song in our mouths. And we're happy, we're joyful. We appear with reverence, but we appear with joy in the Holy Ghost. And it ought to affect everything that we do together. The way that we treat one another, the way that we sing. We don't go through the motions when we sing. Why? Because it would be offensive to God. He deserves our, our full heart. What is the Old Testament pattern of loving God and serving God? To, to love Him and serve Him with, with all our heart and our soul and our mind from the very depths of the core of our being. We love Him and we serve Him and we honor Him. We sing praises unto Him. It's why the song service is so important. Oh, it's why the song service is so important because we're worshiping Him from the heart. I love to sing to God. Now, I can sing okay. You don't see me standing up in front of a band and singing. I don't like singing that much. Rachel is the one in our house that loves to sing. But when I come to church, I love to sing praises unto God. I feel the lyrics as we sing them. We, we shouldn't be so caught up in the, the melodies of the tune, but the lyrics of the hymns that we sing. What we sing in worship should be sound doctrinally. And it should put an emphasis on God and His holiness and His righteousness and His salvation. And not on us. Not on man. So many of the contemporary lyrics today, and I, I listen to K-Love in the car every time I'm driving around with the kids. Lord knows you can't trust the radio to play things that are wholesome for kids today. So what are you going to listen to? Well, it's either talk radio or K-Love, and so we opt for K-Love. And I listen to podcasts of you know seminary lectures when I drive around on church history. That's what I do, but, but the kids in the car, we turn it to that. But so many of the lyrics is me, I, me, I, me, I... And it's about the great things that God will do through me and the great things that God plans for me. And I'm sitting over here thinking, you know, biblically, 
It's not about the great things God's going to do through me. It's about me approaching as a worm of the dirt under the feet of the almighty king of creation and in a miraculous mystery, finding the grace to actually stand in his presence and not be obliterated, but to find love and mercy and peace in the presence of God. Wow, what a concept is that? It, it's everything. It changes everything about how we practice. I'm going to get back to the notes. I'm going to get back to the notes. Yes, we ought to conduct ourselves in a certain way in the house of God. We ought to conduct ourselves in a certain way. That means I'm not going to stand up here. I'm not going to stand up here looking like I'm a hipster in a club on a Friday night, okay? And, and we're not going to have, we're not going to have, you know, I saw a church in a few states over a couple of years ago had like a fundraiser event with a tattoo artist in a brewery. We're not going to have a fundraiser event with a tattoo artist in a brewery. And we're not going to have a rock concert, and we're not going to sing, like, Stairway to Heaven as a church hymn, and, and we're not going to sing anyway. Why do we do what we do in church? We do what we do in church because we want to reverence God, and we want to do things the way that His Word has prescribed. And this is to make us better than anybody. Please understand, I'm not knocking other people because I think I'm better than anybody. What is the motive of this? That I am the chief of sinners. That I'm so condemned without Christ that I don't feel myself authorized. I don't feel myself worthy. How dare I change anything, one iota of what God's Word has commanded me to do in His service. I do only what He has commanded and only what He has revealed in Scripture. And I don't feel myself authorized to make one departure, one detraction from the Word of God. And I need it, and I need church, and I need singing, and I need preaching. I need to hear the prayers of the saints of God. I need to just fall at the feet of Christ in worship. I need that because I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man. Don't you need that? I'm going to get back on my notes. I don't often grant myself the privilege of a tangent to that degree. How to behave thyself in the house of God. Timothy was not a misbehavior, a misbehavior, as it were, in worship. Timothy behaved in church. Timothy's not an outlaw. He's not a renegade. Timothy behaved in church. Paul has in mind how to pursue what you might refer to as orthodoxy. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, conduct yourself in orthodoxy. Or as we began in message one from this series to demand the gospel, to demand the gospel. Paul's emphasis wasn't his personal behavior in worship, but the overall work of Timothy as a gospel minister. What you teach them, what you preach to them, what you share with them, the way that they are to conduct their lives. Let's... Begin looking at the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. If I tarry long, again, I don't know how long it's going to be until I see you again. Son, I love you. This is a son in the ministry, not his son in the flesh. But son, I love you. And I long to be with you, but I don't know how long it's going to be. I had a class reunion last night. It felt like it should have been ten. It was not. How many of you feel that way? You just keep getting the... the you know, the, the next decade, the next decade, the next decade, and, and it always feels like it should be 10. 
10 felt like it should be about 2. This was not 10. There were people there that I hadn't seen in 20 years. And when you have that time away from someone and you see them and they were a great friend of yours, you're like, it's great to see you. You know what it is like to miss someone. Those of you that live away from your parents, I, I miss my parents. I don't see my parents often. I, I see them every few months. I've seen them a lot lately. I got to see them for a couple of hours yesterday, and it was great to see my parents. You know what it's like to, to long to see someone you love. Paul writes, he says, Timothy, I love you. I want to be with you. But if I can't, here's some things that I want you to understand. That you know how to conduct this institution that we call church, how to behave yourself in the house of God, among God's people. Again, in your pursuit of the gospel, in your instruction on prayer, in your instruction on modesty, in your instruction on the qualifications of the preacher and the deacon. That you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, this is the part of the message today that desperately needs preached in our country. It needs clarification. What is the purpose of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, let's begin looking at the words themselves. The word church... Ecclesia, assembly, means a group of people who assemble. Now, there are times in, in Scripture and in first century Greece, first century Rome, that this Greek word has reference to any assembly. Anytime people gathered, there was an ecclesia. There was a church, there was a gathering, but... Scripture uses this word and it redefines it to have reference to when God's people come together. When God's people come together. Now along those lines, the church can be viewed as an institution. And sometimes the word means that. The word church can be used in an institutional sense. In other words, when Jesus said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church will be in this world until Jesus comes again. Amen. There is no destroying this church because God has given His Son Christ all power over all flesh, according to Matthew 28, and He is with us even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so there's no destroying the church. It will be here. Now our individual assemblies might fail. Our individual assemblies might die. But as far as the institution, we have the promise of God that it will stand throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3. The church will be here. The church, the word church, can have reference to the church as an institution. The word church, however, many times in Scripture has reference to the gathering. The gathering, when God's people gather in His name. And so... We view this many times church as institution, as in we say Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, and we think of an institution. But I want you to know that at its core, fundamentally, this institution is an assembly. They're viewed today in our country as 501c3s. An institution 
with a CEO and a board and all of those that belong to it who contribute to it. And that's the way that churches are viewed today. Sometimes churches are viewed as building. Uh, Never in Scripture does the word church have reference to a church building. In fact, they didn't even have church buildings for decades and decades. It wasn't until they had some degree of religious freedom in Rome that they actually had buildings. Now, church buildings were an early utilization among the the church. There were assemblies that had church buildings as early as they could have church buildings. But originally they met where? Well, they met in homes. Or they might meet in, as Paul, in the school of Tyrannus or in some of the synagogues. If an entire synagogue had converted, there might be a faction of believers there that met and heard Paul. And that was, in a sense, a church meeting in a synagogue. It's interesting in the book of James, when James writes about their assemblies, the word there in Greek is actually the word for synagogue, not the word for church, not ecclesia. It wasn't the word for church. It was the word for synagogue. That tells us that the book of James might have been written quite early in the church era, and so they're meeting in synagogues, and they use that word to describe churches. What's the point in saying that? We can use the word church to have reference to the institution, but fundamentally, churches are assemblies. Fundamentally, churches are assemblies because church equals assembly. It is impossible to separate the concept of church with the concept of an assembly. Now, this isn't intended to be offensive to Christianity in general around us. That's like the second or third time I've said this today. It isn't intended to be that. It's simply what the Word is teaching. But in the New Testament, there is a strong association with the term Christian or disciple and the term church slash assembly. It would be unheard of in the first century for someone to say, I am a Christian, but I do not go to church. I'm not talking about missing church when you're out of town. I'm not talking about missing church when you're sick. When you're sick, please miss church. We have a live stream. It is more blessed to give than to receive unless you're talking about a stomach virus or the flu, in which case, stay home, please. (laughs) This has been like the sickest year in the southeast United States ever. It's like the bubonic plague or something, and so that's fine. I'm not talking about missing church. I'm talking about not being a part of an assembly. It would be unheard of in the first century for someone to say, Oh, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a disciple. I'm a Christian. But I don't go to church. The two were were synonymous concepts. To be a disciple was to be a part of the church. To be a part of the church was to be a disciple. And there was no separating the two. In fact, one of the earlier controversies in the church was how to handle people, refer to the lapsi, those who had a lapse in their discipleship who departed from serving Christ because of persecution. How do they handle and treat those people when they come back to church when the persecution ends? And there were some people who said, no, once you do that, you're never welcome here again. And there were others that said, well, no, you should be welcome back fully. 
And there were some who had an in-between position that said, no, you have to stay in the very back. Maybe that's where we get this practice of everyone sitting in the back two pews. You have to stay in the back. You're not allowed to sit up front, and you're viewed as an in-between church membership level, and at death we will take you back in to the full ranks of the church and grant you communion. It was such a such an extreme issue to them that they even had various ways of dealing with those who fell away from their steadfastness in the faith. The word church in English comes from, and I shared this with you many times, it comes from an older English word, kirk, which you find originally in medieval Greek, a word, kyrikon, which comes from the older Greek word, kyrios. The word kyrios means lord. So, Kyrikon is Lord's house. The old English word kirk meant Lord's house, and so it comes into our modern English as the word church. Modern English as the word church. By the way, the Bible that we read is modern English. It's not old English. People say that. You, you and I can't read old English. If you can read old English, I, I want you to demonstrate it for me after church today because it's impressive. It's, it's as foreign of a foreign language as... Actually, it might be more foreign of a foreign language than Spanish or German or any other contemporary language. But the word church means Lord's house. And so sometimes people criticize the word church and they say, well, it shouldn't be church. It should have been translated assembly. But they, they're ignorant of the etymology of that word. The word was literally used to describe Lord's house, which is what? The assembly, which is the church. And so the Lord's house equals the assembly, which equals the church. Now you find this in this verse, that it, thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the house of God. Now, as we think about the church being a house of God, give me another tangent just a moment. Not only do we come together and we worship God the way that God would Command to be worshipped. And what do you mean command to be worshipped? Can I do this any way that I want to do that? No. John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria that it is the Father's desire, the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit means that it's real, you feel it, it's not going through the motions. In truth means, according to Bible doctrine and what is right, what is real, what is true, according to the true principles of the word of God. So we're not authorized. Again, back to we're not authorized. It is the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. As much as it is an institution that pursues truth, where we do things according to this principle of reverence, according to the word of God, there's also a great benefit to the people of God as they what? As they assemble. We have the blessing of fellowship in the church of the Lord Jesus. And I think so many times we underestimate that. If you were raised among the old school Baptists, you're used to fellowship because we like to fellowship here. Amen? Amen? We like to go on as often as we do and eat together. In our lunchroom, the first century church had what they called love feasts, where they would have a feast and it would oftentimes be in conjunction with communion. And it was agape feast, love feasts. We have fellowship potlucks twice a month. Now, one reason that we do that is because we like to eat, right? But the reason that we 
eat together is why. Brother Jerry says, I like to eat. But the reason that we eat together is because we want to enjoy fellowship. There's something we miss when we're not together. Now, I, I mentioned that I was at a class reunion last night. It was, it was fun, but I did not have nearly the degree of friendship and fellowship. In fact, I was thinking this the entire time with many of them there that I loved and spent years of my life with. The same length of time that I've spent with you all here. To think about it, 13 years here, 13 years there, counting kindergarten. I have so much more closeness with you than I had even my best friends there. Why? Because with you I have this fellowship in the church. And we need each other. We help each other. We pray for one another. We lift each other up. We bless each other. There's a community of believers in the church that we miss out on when we're not a part of an assembly that God intends for our benefit. Now, again, the institution is to reverence God and to, as we'll see in a minute, to preach and to sustain and uphold and uplift and share His Word. But God didn't give us this just to be Stoics in pursuit of orthodoxy. There's a benefit that we receive in the house of God that we don't receive when we're not. And we find a closeness together that we don't find in other areas of life. We need that. We need each other. And there's also, I might add, an accountability that we find in the house of God. If you see me doing something that is contrary to the commands of Christ, it is your duty to Christ to hold me accountable for my actions and to lovingly call me out for that and say, I don't think what you did was right there. And to try to lead me back to repentance. Amen. We owe that to one another and to Christ. I can say so much about this. So much that scripture says about this. But as we speak about the house of God, which is the assembly, which is the church. Okay, the Lord's house. Whose house is this? It's God's house. It is the assembly, meaning that it's a house that's not built with physical stones. It's a house built with lively stones, as Peter said. Each and every one of you are lively stones in the house of God. And it is the church of God, the assembly of the Lord's house, the church. The role of this church in the world is to uphold, to lift up, and to proclaim the truth. The church is to be an institution of truth-tellers. The good Lord knows, oh, how does he know that we need truth-tellers in America today. It is your role to be the truth-teller. What do you tell the truth about? Creation, divinity, Christ, salvation, depravity, gender. In the beginning, God made them what? Male and female. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke definitively interpreting Genesis, written by Moses thousands of years ago, speaking about something that God did in the very beginning of time that clarifies one of the most hotly debated issues in America today. We need truth-tellers. The church is the pillar and ground of the what? The truth. It is God's will that you are, as the assembly, the truth-tellers. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, as we think about the truth, first of all, let me say the truth exists. Absolute truth exists. Many times my perspective is gray because I don't have absolute truth in my mind. My understanding of reality depends on my perspective. Those were some of the things that the Greek philosophers before the time of Christ would debate. 
Is there absolute truth and can I know it? And some of them would say it is, but you can't. And to some degree they were right because what I know of truth is shaded by my perspective, by my senses, what I see, what I hear. Some things that I think are true are not true simply because I misinterpreted the situation. Had an embarrassing moment last night. There was a fellow at the reunion that looked like another fellow at the reunion, and I walked up and talked to him as if he was the other guy. That was embarrassing. He didn't notice. If he did, he didn't let me know. He had on sunglasses. I don't know. You look alike. I hadn't seen you in 20 years. Look, give me a break. But our perception is often not reality, but absolute truth exists. Now, we do the best with it as we can. But to God, there are no gray areas. There is absolute truth. You know, you can ask these atheistic, secular philosophers who demand that relativism is right, everything is relative, and there is no truth, there is no absolute truth, and you walk up and you say, are you absolutely sure? And I know that's silly and cliche, but it works. (laughs) There's no truth. Well, is that statement true? By your logic, it isn't. And so at least something is true. You just totally dismantled their idiotic philosophy in one question. There's absolute truth. Number two, truth matters. Truth matters. Number three, truth is crucial. What do you mean by that? Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 reads, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. God's people, my people... Perish for lack of knowledge. Where is it that you hear the truth that is to be in the pulpit? It's why Paul begins this epistle with demanding the gospel. That those who teach, he he criticized those who had turned aside unto vain jangling, vain speech, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He condemned the false teachers... Because the pulpit is to be a place of truth for which we earnestly contend. God's people perish, they're destroyed for a lack of truth, lack of knowledge. Truth is crucial in the life of a child of God. Concerning the importance of truth, John 14, 6, Jesus is truth personified. Does God care about truth? One of his titles is truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the only way to the Father, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus is truth personified. If Jesus is truth personified, don't you think truth matters? Romans chapter 3 says that we should submit to God's truth. Paul wrote, Yea, let God be true. And every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. We are to submit to God's truth. Why do I say that? Sometimes I hear well-meaning people say, I know Jesus, and so because I know Jesus, I know the truth. And so it doesn't matter what we really believe about Jesus. As long as I know Jesus, well, I know the truth. I was given that as an objection years ago by a a person that I I love very much. And it was in opposition to the concept. I'd use the language in a sermon, the true gospel. Friends, there is a true gospel 
And there are false gospels. And scripture says that. That's not me. That's Scripture. Read Galatians 1. There, are true go- there is the true gospel, singular gospel, and there are false gospels. And I was told, you know, I know Jesus. If I know Jesus, that's all I need to know. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. To say, I believe, or I know Jesus, and so I know the truth, what I believe is irrelevant and unimportant is to betray what is clearly revealed in Scripture, the truth matters. In fact, church history has been one epic war over truth from the very beginning. Early in the church, there was the great battles between Judaism. And by Judaism, I mean non-believers who would attack the person of Christ, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. What is that? A matter of truth that needs to be defended. But then these Judaizers come into the church in Acts 15 and they teach the disciples that they cannot be saved unless they be circumcised. And then he goes beyond that as they go back to the council of elders and apostles in Jerusalem. By the time they get back to Jerusalem, it's grown to, no, you have to be circumcised and keep all the, mat, uh, the law of Moses to be saved. Keep all of Moses to be sla- uh, saved? That's, that's Judaizers. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, who has bewitched you? They had fallen into that error. They had fallen from the very belief in grace. They'd left the truth of God and followed a lie. The church fought against Judaism. The church fought against, in the book of Acts, paganism. When Paul would preach publicly, sometimes riots would ensue and they would begin screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And they would drag the Christians into Colosseums where they would make them fight for their lives with wild animals. They fought over truth. What was that attack against? It was an attack against the truth. But shortly after that, the church was attacked from the inside as Gnostics rose up in the church and taught that Jesus had no physical body and he was a lesser deity. And to to achieve oneness with the greater deity, you had to have this illumination, this knowledge, Gnosis, Gnostics. John combats early Gnosticism when he speaks about the fact that Jesus had come in the flesh. It was a battle for the truth. It wasn't long before there was the Arian controversy. Is Jesus God in the flesh or is Jesus a creation of God? And then you had the Sabellian controversy that taught that Jesus is merely a mode of God the Father, and so God the Father became God the Son, who became God the Holy Spirit. And yet Scripture teaches that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We'll talk about this next week. He had the rise of the papacy and the rise of salvation by works and all of the other issues. You look back through history and see that the church has engaged in one war over truth from the very beginning of its existence. And to say, well, you know, the truth really doesn't matter is to disrespect every ounce of blood shed by every martyr who died for the truth, the faith delivered to the saints. Now, I know that time is away at this very moment. And so we'll close with this 
Final point. Coming back to the imagery of the church as the pillar and ground of the truth, what comes into mind when you hear that? A pillar. And what holds up the awning on the front of this building? It's a couple of pillars. We actually have four pillars, columns that hold up the awning. Greek architecture was so that pillars were commonly utilized, columns were commonly utilized in their architecture. I'm sure we can think of several ancient buildings in, the, in Europe that utilized columns and pillars. And they would hold up something. In, in our building's case, our awnings, might, maybe your porch. You might have a pavilion that's roof is suspended on pillars. Paul gives us this imagery to say that the church is the pillar and ground under which the truth or on which the truth rests. You have the truth lifted up, sitting on the pillar and ground of the church. We would think about it in the opposite way, that the church is founded on the truth, and that's certainly the case. But understand that your role in the world is to lift up the truth of God. This is a picture of a foundation. The church is the foundation of the truth. It lifts it up. Along those lines, first of all, the church defends the truth. Paul said in Philippians 1.7 that he is set for the defense of the gospel. We defend the truth. There is a place for the defense of the truth in the church. When we engage in that, be not offended, but understand that it is our very charge to defend the truth. But it's also our responsibility to confirm the truth. Paul said, I'm set for both the defense and the confirmation of the gospel in Philippians 1.7. This means that we affirm and promote the truth. I want you to affirm the truth. I want you to affirm the truth. And then finally, 2 Timothy 2.2, it is our responsibility as the church to pass on the truth. We pass it on. Paul said, those things that you've heard of me among many brethren, I want you to pass on to other faithful men. This is 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the truth, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. As the pillar and ground of the truth, we defend the truth, we affirm the truth, and we spread the truth. 